Welcome to the Grace City Church Podcast, where we believe that Jesus died to reconcile us to God, to others, and to make us reconcilers. We're so glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're watching, God is doing transforming work in you through this message. Uh, My name is Richard Brown. Uh, I am one of the pastors here, elder pastor here, and it is an honor and a privilege uh, to, to, to be that in position. Um, the Lord has truly blessed me, and I am grateful that I just have an opportunity to care for you and be cared for and just really have an opportunity to also stand up in front of you and, and talk about what God says in His Word. And, um, and so anyway, this will, I think this is going to be a good time. We've just gone through a series about the church and, um, and how the church is the body of Christ, and I think probably you have heard that language some, um, that we're the body of believers. I think that's a common thing that you think about as a body. We've also talked about how it's the building, and we're, we're being built together, and I think that's pretty common. But now we're going to have a couple of sermons, a couple of messages about we're also the bride of Christ. I don't know that you're as familiar with that kind of terminology or we talk about that quite as much as we may talk about us being the body of believers. But I would suggest that the terminology and the thinking behind that you and I as followers of Christ are His bride that we, that we have this relationship with Him, that in actuality, the marriages here on earth really acts as kind of as a representation of something far greater, and that is our marriage to Christ in, in heaven. It, that marriage on earth is just a representation of that that we don't even carry into heaven with us. But it really gives us some illustrations and some understandings of what it means to be the bride of Jesus. You even see this as you go into the Old Testament. Will mentioned a little bit earlier, we're going to go through the life of Abraham. And one of the things you're going to see with Abraham is the covenants that God had made with his people. Covenant is very similar to the word vow. So you see very early on there was these vows being made between God and his children. Another one that really suggests this relationship is the book of Hosea. Who knows about the book of Hosea? So the book of Hosea was a preacher, prophet. And God came to Hosea, and here's what he said to him. He said, Hosea, I want you to marry a promiscuous woman. And he said, and y'all going to have children. As you go through the book, you see that the, as she had these three kids, that the first one was Hosea's kid. The next one, they wasn't sure. And the third kid, it was absolutely not Hosea's kid. But what it says in the very beginning, he says, Hosea, the reason you're going to do this is because you're going to be an illustration of adultery. That Gomer, your wife, is going to be an illustration to the children of Israel what it looks like to be unfaithful to me. That God in the Old Testament calls the children who were not faithful adulterers. So again, you see again this imagery of how that we are the bride and that we are married to Christ. And then we get into the New Testament, and it really comes in kind of a more fulfillment. Now Jesus is this identifiable bridegroom that we're married to, and we have this relationship with. And Jesus, he develops us as believers, and we, and, and, and we are in this process of becoming more like Christ because we're going to be fully 
presented to him on this huge, magnificent celebration day that Will will be talking about in Revelations next week. So we're now in this preparation time where we're fully Christ, but we're not quite all the way there. We're in this time where we're being developed in this beauty. Let me give you a couple passages here. Um, Let's pull the first one up. This is, this is Paul writing. He said, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Paul's saying, listen, I labor. I work hard because I want to see you grow because I, you're promised to this husband. And, and I want to present you to this husband as a pure virgin. To Christ. Let's go to the next passage. This is Romans 19, 7 through 8. It says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has been made ready for uh, her, had been made herself ready, meaning you and I. Fine linen, bright and clean, and fine linen, bright and clean was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteousness acts of God's holy people. You also see that. Um, Jesus tells a parable in the book of Matthew 25. He talks about ten virgins. And he's talking about in the coming kingdom. He says these ten virgins are waiting for their husband to come and to arrive and to have a ceremony. And five virgins were ready. They were prepared with their oil and five weren't ready. The principle is, is while we're waiting for this marriage celebration, we need to be getting ready. We need to be preparing ourselves. So this is kind of the imagery that we find in this, that we are preparing for the celebrations of the marriage to Christ. There's this wedding preparation. And I've I've done a lot of weddings in my life. And here's what I've kind of noticed and known. that, Like when we got married in, I guess, 1991, I think Donna probably got put a makeup on going down the road looking in the mirror, right? (laughs) Nowadays, it's like I'll, I'll be at a rehearsal the wedding's at like 6.30 the next day, and they say, okay, bridesmaids, let's everybody get here at 7 o'clock in the morning to start the preparation time. They'll have a hire a makeup person to come in and hire a hair person to come in, and they get ready, they get clean, they get beautiful. And really, that's kind of biblical. Biblical in the sense of this preparation of beauty, this preparation of getting ready for the bridegroom, not biblical in the way that that's external and this is internal, right? But, I, but, but you see this imagery that God calls us, that our, our husband, the one that we have unity with, with Christ, we're getting ready for something beautiful and magnificent, this celebration where that we will be with him forever. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5. And in this passage, um, you can go ahead and get it up. But in this passage, we typically talk about Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25, is a, a model to teach men how they ought to love their wives. And what it says is, is husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church. In other words, the husband part of it is really an application or an illustration to how Christ loves us. And so I'm not going to talk about husbands right now. I'm not going to talk about the application of this passage. I'm going to talk about the root 
really the anchor, the, the footers of this passage, is really Christ and how he loves us. How he loves his church. That we're loved by Christ. Here's the thing, I say that. And that feels good and sounds good, but I don't know that it, every one of us find it easy to be loved. I, I, I can love people very well. I really can. But I don't receive love well, good at all. I, this weekend we had a leadership retreat, and it was, it was really wonderful and great. And, and TJ come, came up to me after a prayer time, and TJ said, Richard, I, I really love you. And I thought, who do you think is going to win the Super Bowl? You know, it was just a little awkward. You know what I mean? I go, oh, and he meant it. And, and it just made me uncomfortable. I don't have anything in my past that makes me not really want to be loved. I've always been loved, but I just, I, I give love easily, but I don't receive it. It's kind of interesting. We also had a time where the elders and, the, and our wives sat in front and we washed everyone's feet. They'd take their shoes off, they'd put their foot in there, and we would wash it. And I love doing that, but it makes people awkward. Some, one person sat down, and they wouldn't sit straight, they sat sideways, because they was ready to get out of there. You know, they were ready to move on. <laughs> Another person sat down, and they said this. They said, this just makes me awkward. And I said, I get it. I said, and we had a conversation. We, were, we washed their feet and prayed for them. And I said, I get it. I said, last year, after we finished that, somebody came. Out. It was actually Austin Williams. When we finished washing, Austin Williams said, Pops, I'm going to wash your feet. And I thought, oh, how can I get out of this? I'm thinking I'm stronger than her, but she's quicker, you know? <laughs> but it's just hard sometimes to just sit and receive the love of God. And that's so vital to your maturation. Also, with the, I keep talking about the retreat because it's still lingering on me. It's still stuck to me. But Gray Rambo got up, and he was talking about God's love. And he said this. He said... God's love, we see it in 1 John, that God is love, and love is God. He said they're interchangeable. He said, what I want you to do is I want you to put on your phone to remind you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and then I want you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where it says, 13, where it says, love is kind, love is gracious. It says, he said, I want you to replace it with God. He said, I want you to say in your mind that, that let me read some of it to you. Say, instead of saying love is patient, say God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not keep a record of wrongs. He said, set a clock, and it kind of hit me. Why? Because we just forget that, and it's hard to sit in that reality. It's hard for me to go, God is patient. The reason is I'm so impatient with myself. I'm real patient with you. There's not much you could do that would make but. I think about my fault. Sometimes I'll wake up in the middle of the night thinking, ah, oh, shouldn't have done that. Man, I really messed that up. You know, sometimes I wake up and I'm just not very kind to myself. I just criticize. My, I'm much criti more critical on me than I'm any of you here. But I need to sit down and go, God is patient with me. That's the way he expresses his love. That God is kind. That God is not keeping all these records of my messes like I have. He doesn't have this ledger. 
So he's got, oh, you shouldn't have said that. Oh, you shouldn't have done that. Oh, oh, you shouldn't have done that. I do it, but he doesn't. And I just need to be reminded. I'm going to get Megan to put that on my calendar. I just need to be telling myself that constantly. God's patient with me. He's kind with me, and I need to preach that word, pray over that reality that God is love. Here's the deal. If you can't even, if we can't even sit and receive the love of God, it so stifles our growth. It stifles our preparation for the wedding ceremony in heaven one day. In this passage, it says, Just as Christ loved the church, watch this, and he gave himself up for her. This word gave himself up. Let me, let me bring a slide up and tell you what this word gave himself up means. It says in the, this word is called paradidomai. It means to give up. It says in the ancient world, paradidomai gave up was used as a technical term of police and courts, meaning to hand someone over in custody. The idea is to give over, into one's give over into one's power or use and involves either the handing over of a presumably guilty person for punishment by authorities or the handing over of an individual to an enemy who presumably takes undue advantage of the victim and is with a case in arrest and trials that followed our Lord's Day. Here's what this really means. You, you, you know the imagery of courts and sometimes someone, they're guilty, they know they're guilty, and they're caught, and they go and they hand themselves into the police. They relinquish all their rights. They recognize it. They know they're guilty. They walk into the court. They walk into the police station, and they do this. You got me. I said, that's what Jesus did for you and me. That he relinquished his rights of freedom, if you will. He walked into the courthouse, and he says, I'm guilty. Because he had your sin and my sin on him. That he absorbed your sin, your rebellion, your passion for autonomy, the way you mistreat, and the way all of that autonomy expresses itself in our world. He took all of that and he raked it off of you and he put him on himself and he was declared guilty. And he walks in the police station and he relinquishes his rights and he was abused for it. That's what it means that he gave himself up for you and I. Because when he took that sin off of you and he took it off of me, you know what that means? That we're holy. That's what it says. It says he gave himself up for her, meaning you and I, meaning the church, to make her holy. That word to make her holy is a word that, that recognizes the position that you are in. That you're holy. You're recognized as holy, that you're sanctified, you're put in another spot. That God recognizes your perfection, if you will. The next word that uses to make cleansing her by the washing, this is more progressive. Meaning that we are even becoming holy and we're being washed. Now that can be a little confusing to us. Because if somebody came to me and says, Richard, are you a sinner? I'd go, Shh. And I say, I'm not a sinner. I'm sanctified. And they would say, well, do you sin? I would go, yeah, I sin, but I'm not a sinner. This is really what this principle is addressing. 
that you have been made holy, but you're in this process of continuing to be made holy. It's a little confusing, but here's a good way to illustrate it. Let's say there was a 13-year-old young man who grew, his last name was Jones, and he grew up in a real difficult neighborhood. He was living that out. He was acting out. He was struggling. He was sinning. He was causing chaos. And let's say he got adopted by the Smiths. So the Jones goes to the courthouse with the Smith family, and the judge bangs the gavel, and he said, okay, Mr. 12-year-old Jones, you're a Smith now. They sit, Mr. they sit the little boy in the judge's lap, and they take pictures and all of that. And so now he's a smith. But every now and then he acts like a Jones. He's struggling to live out the principles of being a smith now. But if you ask him, say, hey, what's your, what, are you a Jones or a smith? He would go, I'm a smith. Because I got a picture of the judge. He made me a smith. They declared me a smith. And they wrote it on a piece of paper. It's over with. And I go, why do you act like a Jones? And I struggle sometimes being a smith. I'm being developed as a smith. This is really what this principle means. That we are people who are holy. Who God is developing. Because we're going to be ultimately presented to him one day. At a huge, beautiful ceremony. It goes on to say... That this process, if you will, of becoming made more into the image of Christ, of being perfected and to becoming pure, it says, by the cleansing, by the washing with the water through the word. Um, here's what it says. That God's word is hygiene. That God's word, it cleanses us. It's interesting because this word, word here, is not the word logos that we might think about, like in the, you know, about when we think about the Bible or the written word. This word is more the spoken word. It's more like um, teaching or kind of prophetic word of someone speaking and saying things. Here's, here's what it's implying there that this process of becoming more like Christ is found in the confines of discipleship and people speaking truth into your life. It's absolutely connected to God's Word because that's what discipleship is, but it's teaching. You know, that's one of the reasons that we desire to theologically equip. We started a cohort here. And one of the reasons we started a cohort here is because we want little prophets with a little P, not predictors so much as just someone who can speak truth into people's lives because this is what is cleansing. Really what I'm doing right now is part of cleansing. I'm, we're teaching, we're communicating God's word and it's purifying, it's put you into a process of being cleansed. We speak God's word, we communicate God's word and it washes, it cleanses. And you might say, I don't remember about 5% of what anybody ever says. And I would say this, I would say next week, if you ask me the bath that I took this morning, what it was exactly like, I don't know really what I did, but I'm clean. You know what I mean? I'm not dirty anymore. And I'm going to take one next week and I won't forget it. But there's just this washing that takes place when we're into one another's lives and we're communicating God's truth and we're talking and we're dependent on God's word and we're reading it and we're communicating it. It's, it's, it's about hygiene, it's about cleansing, it's about developing, and we work real hard. You know, our church, let me take you to another passage that I, I really love, is in Colossians. 
in Colossians 1.28, he says, He, meaning Jesus, is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, we strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in us. He says, the business that we're about is teaching and proclaiming and admonishing with the biblical wisdom so that we may present people fully mature in Christ. He said, we do this with the energy of Jesus working in our life, that this is what we strive to do. And now I'm going to say something, that our church has to be organized around this principle, that we don't need to be doing other things. You need to ask the question, we're doing Black History Month right now, how does this fit in with discipleship? And here's what I would say, that if you're not culturally competent, it's going to be hard to love your brothers and sisters. It's going to be hard to be missional. You know, we, you've heard me talk about Scotland some. One of the things that they do in Scotland, if you, go, if you go to any mission organization to train to be a missionary, they're going to spend a lot of time helping you understand and having cultural competency. If you go with a mission organization and they're teaching you about culture and understanding the people that you're trying to love and trying to reach, and you go, man, I don't need all that. I'm just going to preach the Bible. They're going to say, man, you need to get your redneck self back to the other side of the ocean. It is a cultural competency that we want to have. It is that this instruction and understanding of reaching people and caring for people and proclaiming and admonishing the goodness of God because we are presenting people to Christ. Let's go to our next passage. I mean, the next. Notice what it says. We're staying in Ephesians. It uses the same term I just went to, the Colossians. It says that, 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 that Christ, he made us holy, put us in this position, and he's in the state of washing us and cleansing us. And it says, the reason he's doing this is to present, again, you get the same imagery, we're being presented to our bridegroom to present her as a radiant church without stain or without wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. If that's what God wants us to look like. He says we work, we, we, we position ourselves and orient our life that we can be loved by God and we sit in that reality and that truth of who God is. That we, um, we recognize that Christ gave himself for our sins that our sins went on him and that we are justified and that we are holy and that he is making us, that he is cleaning us constantly and we will be presented as a church without stain, wrinkle, or blemish, but holy and blameless. You know, I love, these, I love this terminology of holy and blameless. It, it, it literally means without anything that's disfiguring. It means without any kind of a defect. It means without a stain. That that's what we're moving to. That the goodness and the grace and the love of God is developing us in such a way that we're perfect. We're being perfected. Let's go to the next passage. It's kind of interesting. Um, I'm going to camp there a little bit more about 
just the teaching of the word and the, and the communicating and trusting in God's words to cleanse people. Um, as some of you know, we've been, we've been talking about Scotland a little bit on mission and that type of thing and how our church might be involved in planting, literally planting a church and a scheme in Scotland. The scheme is this. The scheme is a housing project. They say it's kind of a cross between a housing project, I mean, an inner city project, a trailer park, and an Indian reservation kind of combined in one. And they do something, we're reading a book right now that is called Planting Churches in Hard Places, and it's talking about planting churches and schemes of Scotland. And here's what they say. It says, so often some people come there and they think people in poverty that live in schemes are stupid and they can't learn. And he said, they take the opposite approach. Like while we were there, they have something called the Ragged School of Theology. And they're in all these schemes where drugs and and, and depression and crime is everywhere. And every week they have people coming in that live in the schemes that are new believers and they have little notebooks and they have their Bible. And all, all the eight of the schemes come together at one time on video and they, just, and they do Bible teaching. Talk about pretty deep theological things because they're just embracing this responsibility of cleansing, of speaking God's word that develops people. Now it's talking about how Christ loves us as his body. It goes on to say, it's talking about husbands particularly. It says, after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed it and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. It's kind of interesting because this word, you know, in the NIV it says um, they feed and care for it. Some of your versions said, says cherish and nourish. I kind of like the term cherish and nourish a little better than it's the same thing, but feed and cared for. Because the word nourish that you have in some of your Bible, it, it means to breastfeed. It gives you the imagery of a mother sitting down with her child and letting the child latch and nurse. I mean, really, I mean, I've watched that. You can imagine, I have nine kids, how many times I've seen that go on. <laughs> but it really is one of the sweetest things in the world. If you watch a mom nurse, and I'm not saying go stare at moms who are nursing, but if you were to do that, if you were to do that, you would just see this love and this care. You would watch a mom stare in this baby's eyes because the mom literally is giving out her resources and what makes her viable into the life of this child. And she holds the baby and she looks at it and stares. And just there's just something that takes place that's magical, and that's the imagery that you get when how God loves us. Now that's not the easiest thing in the world to kind of think about, or you know, because again, I, I'm not one who wants to receive that kind of nurturing. But God says, Richard, you're a baby of mine and I, I, I want that intimacy and that care and that contact, and I want you to sit in that, and I want you to relax in that. Is there anything more relaxed than a baby nursing? I think God calls us to be that way, just to, you know what I mean? Just lay there, Him cuddling us and giving us life. It says that's the way He loves us. Maybe that's a little harder for men to think about. I've oftentimes think being loved is maybe a little easier for women than men. I don't know. But it's what he calls us to be. He calls us to lay there and, and nestle and nudge and relax because we're being cared for in that way. 
It's real tender. Some of you see God, you see Jesus as kind of this kind of way, don't you? Like, hmm. Who does that? Be honest. Oh, come on, y'all. But he's not. He's a, he's a, Jesus nurses us. It also uses the language, it says, for he feeds and cares for us. That's the idea of warmth. <clears throat> it takes the idea of being in a cradle surrounded by straw or hay, and there's warmth and there's comfort there and there's rest. That again, it implies this rest. You know, the, 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 I get how that when we walk out into this real world, that we find no rest. It's, it's, it doesn't really want you to rest. It has all these criterias and responsibilities and things that we do and things that we're supposed to do. It has this criticism and it has all this going on, this constantly screaming at you going, don't rest. But God says, hey, I'm, I'm laying you down in a little manger with, and wrapped and you're warm and you're comfortable and you can just, you can rest. You can chill out because he gave his life for you and he loves you and he cares for you. He separated you out. He declared you as holy. He's given you perfection. And he's even those times that you want to act like a smith, he's developing you out of that. Verse 30 says, For all members of his body, for this reason a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife. He's going back to Genesis chapter 3. Here's what's happening. He's going back to Genesis chapter 3, and he's talking about the, how marriage, the, the, the institution of marriage was instituted in Genesis 3. It says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Go next. And he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Here's what he unpacked and unfolded. That this institution of marriage... Here on earth, that we don't even take to heaven with us, is really just a, a faint illustration of something more grand and more beautiful that he's saying, this is a mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and his church. The love that is supposed to happen in this union on earth, it really happens in its fulfillment with Jesus. That he is our husband and he loves us. And we respond, and He initiates, and He cares, and He nurses, and He comforts, and He calls us holy, and He sets us apart, and He's developing us, and He's caring. And, I, and another beautiful thing is He lets us, as a church of believers, be involved in how He develops people, and we strive for that. And even as we strive for that and we work, we can also rest. Because really, it's fundamentally His responsibility. He just lets us enjoy it happening. He's not necessarily dependent on us, but we get to participate in this beautiful thing of preparing this bride for this beautiful ceremony. We get to watch it take place. We're kind of the hairdresser and the makeup artist, and we're there creating beauty, and we can rest, and we can relax in that. I'm going to get the band to come on forward. read you a quote by John Piper. He's talking about this when it says mystery. And he says this mystery is the clue. He said this, with this as his clue, meaning mystery, 
unfolds the meaning of marriage. It's a symbol of Christ's love for the church, represented in the husband's loving headship toward his wife, and it's a symbol of the church's glad submission to Christ represented in the wife's relationship with the husband. The mystery, because God did not reveal it clearly in his purposes that the marriage of male and female in Genesis, there were hints of it. That God is using this earthly thing to represent something much more beautiful in heaven. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace City Church Podcast. Whether this is your first time with us or you find the Lord moving you to engage differently or just learn more about who we are, we encourage you to find us at our website at www.thegracecity.com to explore all of the ways that you can give, connect, and engage. Thank you again for being with us. Now go live as image bearers of the King.